0: But at the same time, you have personally reached down and become one of us and, 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 and lived here and, and demonstrated who the God of love is. And you died for us. You took, took what we deserve to have and you took it on yourself so that we could have that relationship with Father God. And as we celebrate today, I just pray that you would, in a new way, let us see what you have done for us, for, not just for the whole world, but for me and, and for every person here, you've done personally for us so that we could have life. We could have a life abundantly. And I just pray, God, as we continue in worship in the word, we just pray that you will continue to, to change our hearts and lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes when we have communion, we shorten the worship at the beginning and we'll have more worship at the end of the service today. And uh, that's what we're doing today uh, so we can celebrate communion together. When Jesus was on earth, he took his last journey into Jerusalem on what we call today Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus had had just raised a man from the dead. This guy's name was Lazarus. And he had two reactions to this incredible sign and wonder. He had two reactions to this. Many, many of the people believed in him. I mean, you raise a guy from the dead, what else do you have? Now the other ones, the other reaction, was they decided they were gonna try to kill him because people believed in him. Unbelievable, but, but true. And during the next week, which we now celebrate as Passion Week, Jesus was transformed from hero to heretic, all in about four days. And on Thursday of that week, Jesus celebrated his last meal with his followers. It was called the Last Supper. Today we commemorate this event and call it the Lord's Supper, or simply, Communion. The purpose of Communion was multifaceted, but it was primarily a feast of remembrance to remember Jesus' death for the sins of the world. And when I say the world, that includes all of us individually as well. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, or Communion, but before I do, I want to look at the next passage of 1 Corinthians, to further understand what the celebration is about. We are right at that point in 1 Corinthians uh, to the passage that talks about this. And the question is how should we approach this celebration? What is our attitude? Can you pull me down just just a tad bit? What is our attitude? Every time we approach an event, we have an attitude, some kind of an attitude, a feeling, a disposition, an opinion, uh, a mental set, a, a heart attitude. And as we prepare to share communion together, what is our attitude? What what should our attitude be? That's the question. Today's passage shows us that there is a wrong way and a right way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It has nothing to do with mechanics and elements and even the setting. It has all to do with our heart and our attitude. Today, the sermon is entitled Attitude Check. Attitude Check. Six Attitudes for the Communion Celebration. And I'd like you to turn with me to to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. We're at the 11th chapter, and uh, it's on page 930. If you want to look at it in the Bible in the rack in front of you, it'll also be on the screen in front of you. 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 17. Kind of some interesting, interesting verses. Says In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have, have to be differences among you to show which of you are God's approval. have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry... He should eat at home so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Interesting dynamics in the the early church. And I've heard something a lot over the last 30 or 40 years that people said, we just need to be the New Testament church. It'd be great if we were just like the New Testament church. And One writer commenting on that said, why would we want to return to that? <laughs> we do want signs and wonders. We want miracles. We want to see the power of God released. But some of the problems were unique, and we said, no, no, they can have those back then. We, we have enough issues today in the church. But it is true there are challenges. And I want us to unpack what, what he was talking about then and see how it applies to today. First of all, some background. The celebration of communion, was usually in the context of what was called a love feast. A love feast, getting together and eating a meal together was kind of like what we call today a potluck. Everyone would bring food to share. Those are the last names beginning with A to H. Brought a main dish, I through M salads and N through Z desserts. You didn't know that potlucks were a biblical absolute, did you? No, just 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 joking. It wasn't. We're not sure exactly where the theology of the potluck originated. Uh, some thought the term potluck came from the construct of two Greek words uh, pote which means once at one time or formerly and leukos, wolf Which pote lucos," at once or one time to wolf down the food um, now? We haven't <laughs> Substantiated that by any Greek scholars or anybody else, but it's it is a theory that's out there so while the, the Corinthians weren't as organized as we are in our feasts. Our patelecs are pretty organized. Um, but the Corinthian church, prior to celebrating the Lord's Supper, ate dinner or supper together. Now, if you're in the West Coast, it's dinner or East Coast dinner. If it's in the Midwest, it's supper. Whatever. We'll just say that. But instead of sharing, they came together for And instead of sharing, they would eat what they brought. Okay? That means that Pastor Damien would get to eat all of his mac and cheese and we would get nothing. Okay? That's what would happen. That's what it was like. And we're not talking about just favorite recipes. They would eat their food before everyone else arrived, especially before the poor people arrived. It would be like coming into the potluck, and every time you're the last person in line, there's nothing left. There were vast differences in class in the Corinthian church. Vast differences. The wealthy would bring their steaks and chicken and desserts, while the poor, if they had any food at all, would probably bring a crust of bread. And these believers were coming together to celebrate the body of Christ. This was supposed to be a unifying event, a description of unity, and it was, there was anything but unity. He says these gatherings were full of selfishness, gluttony, and even drunkenness. In a setting where unity was the standard in the church that was supposed to be the alternative, the alternative to the broken culture around them, we find prejudices and contentiousness and selfishness. Where the church was to be different than the culture around it, they were reflecting the same social problems that were in the society. So Paul writes strongly to them and to us, to us as well, six attitudes for the communion celebration. And these shouldn't be just for the communion celebration, they should actually be in our life as well. Should carry out over, so let's look at the first attitude. The first attitude is unity. In verse 18, Verse 18, he says, In the first place, I hear that you have come together as a church. There are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Unity. Paul calls them to unity. In fact, when you go through this whole book, there is a constant theme of unity because he understands that we are connected as a body. We are part of the same body of believers, the church. And and so he calls them to unity. there, There are a lot of forces that mitigate against unity. And we see this in our lives. In, in the, the, the first one was divisiveness. And he talks about divisiveness in the church. What, what comes to your mind when I say the word divisive? What comes to your mind? Fighting. Fighting. Politics. Politics. We're not going to go there. <laughs> anyway, no. Okay, we, we think about taking sides. Forming groups, exclusion, cliques conflicts, disagreements, emphasizing differences instead of similarities. You know, we can, we can find divisiveness in many, many ways. I think about jealousy, envy, selfish ambition, personal agendas, competition, you know, you name it. There are a lot of things. James 3.16 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. And divisiveness was, was rampant then. And it's rampant today, and and it's something we have to watch out for. The second problem against unity was individualism. Just doing one's own thing. These people were with the group, but not part of the group. They wanted to keep their actions separate from everybody else. They wanted to maintain their individualism to the exclusion of unity. Now, if you take a sports team now, one that's very successful, right? I know the Brewers are, I think they've clinched a wild card spot and may get into the playoffs with a spot, but uh, if you look at a team like the Brewers, you find out that it's made up of a lot of individuals, a lot of individuals, but they sacrifice their individualism to function as a group, as a team. So yeah, they're individuals, and they're valued as individuals, but they function as a team. And in the church, God does not want us to lose our unique individualism. He wants us to be unique individuals. Every one of us is unique, and we ought to affirm that. But he wants to see how we fit together as one team, as one team. Next Sunday, we're going to be talking about that. I'm going to be starting 1 Corinthians 12, one of the most exciting passages I think in, that I ever get, get a chance to talk about, but that's, that's next Sunday. How do we fit together as a team? We are individuals, yes, but individualism, no, there's a unity. There are a lot of things fighting unity. There were cultural differences, and we talked about the different cultural differences um, of, of new believers, Greeks, Jews, all the kinds of things. And we find those today, many different cultural differences. Culture is like the water in which fish swim. We don't always understand it, but there's a definitive culture in every part of the country, in every family, every church, every, every city. There's a culture. There are cultural differences. And then there are economic differences. In this particular case, there were the rich and the poor, the two radical ones. Now, typically, we don't have that large a gap in, in our community. We do have rich and poor, but it's not like, like, like an inner city or an overseas mission. Many of you donate to, to needs overseas or places that have really, really uh, terrible needs. Some of you might get involved in Com- Compassion International, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Adopt a child to support because they have nothing. And, and like... a month or $39 a month will give them their education, food, and clothing. I mean, it's just amazing what that will do. Maybe it's World Hope you support with uh, digging water wells in in agriculture, medical clinics, schools, helping to build churches. Um, There were rich and poor. Now, the question people ask is, was Paul advocating communal living or equal distribution of wealth, or was he advocating socialism? No, he never did. He doesn't try to eliminate all social distinctions. He says the wealthy still have their homes in which to eat meals privately, but don't bring those distinctions to the common meal of believers where Christ made them one. Leave all that aside. Come and be one. Paul is condemning the attitude of divisiveness and disunity as they come together to celebrate the sacred rite designed to express unity, selflessness, and sharing. Jesus said it well in John 17 when he said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's our primary identifying factor of what we draw people to? What, What draws people they love one another. Hey, wow, it's it's the love. They people come in. You know, you can you can tell if you go into a setting, you can tell immediately if they love each other or not, or if they tolerate each other, or if there's disunity or whatever. You can feel it in the air. There's chemistry. And, and my prayer is that, that we would be one, that we would have that kind of unity so when people come into contact, they just walk in the door. They even drive past the, the, the parking lot, drive past the church, and they just, they just sense unity and oneness. Oneness, unity. The second attitude is selflessness. Selflessness, verse 21. Says, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Crazy! It demonstrates selfishness, total self-absorption. Um, do you do you know anyone that you would describe as self-absorbed or narcissistic? You don't raise your hand, okay? Um, self-absorbed or self or narcissistic. You know this. It begins at birth when we think we're the center of the universe, and we're we're really happy until we discover otherwise. Some people never get over it. They still think they're the center of the universe. Total disregard for others. One of the huge problems in America is self-absorption, even as a, as a nation. Take a lot of things for granted. A lot of things for granted. We have total religious freedom, so we can benefit from the good news and the gospel, the spiritual riches. And because of the spiritual heritage we have, make no mistake, as we are founded on, on the word of God and spiritual principles and Christianity, God has made this the richest nation on earth. We have central heating, central air conditioning, more than two sets of clothes. When I traveled in Eastern Europe um, once, I, I noticed that, that people that worked in the hotel where we are staying wore the same thing every day. It was in an Eastern European country that was poor at that point in time. It's changed now, but it was it was poor. And they wore the same clothes every day. And we asked the missionary, and he said, Well, they have two sets of clothes. They have they have what they wear every day, and then they have another set for Sundays. That's all. Two. Two sets of clothes. Seriously? Yeah, that's true. We have so much food to eat that we have a category called junk food. Okay? One of the biggest industries in in America is the diet food industry. We have cell phones, laptops, iPads, tablets. And remember, don't forget that we are part of the church of Christ worldwide. It's not just us. We're part of it worldwide. Dr. Timothy Johnson, who's a physician, former medical editor for ABC News, wrote a book entitled Finding God in the Questions. It's a very interesting book, Finding God in the Questions. And when addressing the issue of his personal wealth and success and what to do about it, he said this. He said, deep in my heart, I know how much of my good fortune has been way beyond my control and effort, such as having been born in this particular country, having loving and supportive parents, and being genetically blessed with good physical and mental health. And still knowing that, by his own admission, he still wrestled with selfishness. Yeah, we got it good. We have it good. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Selfishness. The third attitude as we approach the Lord's Supper is humility. Humility. In verse 24 it says, And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body which is for you. This was freely given. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn the forgiveness of our sins. We have salvation. We have that open relationship with with God because Jesus chose to die for us. He gave. Jesus gave his body and gave his blood. We don't deserve anything we've been given. It's hard to think that way because I, I keep thinking, you know, we're, we're kind of an achievement society and say, man, I deserve this. I deserve that. I, you know. Everything we've been given is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And James 1, 17 ties it up, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. What do we have that we didn't receive? Oh, that, man, call us to humility. All we have spiritually is a gift from God. All we have relationally is a gift from God. All we have physically is a gift from God. All we have materially is a gift from God. Humility as we approach this. The fourth attitude is remembrance, remembrance. Verse 24, a part we read, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. God's people celebrated many religious festivals. The, the most well known and the first one instituted was the Passover to remember what God had done, the incredible miracle of preserving their life, and then the Exodus, etc. Today, we. We, we celebrate a lot of religious festivals. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, the Last Supper. Those are all, why? To remember. Those are religious celebrations. We have civic holidays. We have President's Day and we have Martin Luther King's holiday, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, Patriot Day, Thanksgiving. What are those for? To remember. We have family remembrance. We have Mother's Day, Father's Day, birthdays, wedding anniversaries. Why do we remember those? So you don't get in trouble with your wife. No, I'm just kidding. We remember all of those things to honor, to remember, so that we don't forget. We don't forget. Communion. The Lord's Supper for the Corinthians and for us is to remember a real historical event, Gordon Fee says the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial of the Last Supper nor of Christ's death per se. It is a constant, repeated reminder and experience of the effectiveness of that death for us. Personalize it. Don't just make it abstract. Personalize it. It's for us. It's for me. Salvation through Christ's death created a new community of people. Remember. Number five, proclamation. Proclamation. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By celebrating this together, we declare the good news of our salvation. And that makes us one. When we celebrate this together publicly, we're saying we're proclaiming something publicly. It's good news. One of the guys I read, Kenneth Chaffin, said this. He said, For many years, I found participating in the Lord's Supper to be depressing. I never told anyone about it for fear they would misunderstand me, but I never looked forward to the services in which we observed communion. I had the same feeling about some of the Holy Week services. There seemed to be almost a morbid preoccupation with man's sinfulness and Christ's death. I couldn't understand why Christ wanted me to do something as part of my worship that left me so glum. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. And then he said, then I realized that in the observance, Christ wanted me to remember everything about him. His love for me, his forgiveness, his purpose, his hope, his presence, his power. And it was only when my thoughts and my prayers connected with communion began to reach out to remember everything that I began to find myself cleansed and renewed by my participation. Remember everything about God, because this is what made that possible for us. Proclamation. The sixth attitude is examination. Examination, 27. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever drinks the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Introspection. And I encourage, I know we say this, but I just want to encourage you again to rethink this. When we're getting ready to partake of the, of the Lord's Supper, ask, is there anything in me that needs to be made right? Is there any sin in me that needs to be confessed? Is there any relationship that needs to be reconciled? Now, what does it mean? What does unworthy participation mean? This, this is one of those passages we, I want to unpack just a bit. It's not a question of our worthiness before God, but it's my attitude or conduct within the body of Christ. In other words, we can't can't make everything right before us. We can't earn that or make that happen. Jesus did that. I can't make myself worthy, but what is my attitude towards the other parts of the body? If I have an attitude of divisiveness, selfishness, arrogance, or forgetful, it contradicts the message by my behavior then that is unworthy participation. He said to recognize the body, in verse 29. And without understanding we're part of the family, united selfless, serving in humility, we drink merely as individuals, and we neglect to remember that we are part of the whole. This is part of a communion, community experience. Recognize, acknowledge Jesus' body of the church. And he says if you do that, you'll avoid judgment. If we do not participate in a worthy manner, if we do not recognize the body, then we may suffer judgment. Verse 30, it says that some of you have suffered sickness, weakness, and some have actually died, which is what fallen asleep means. Fallen asleep. Now today as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to encourage you to examine yourselves, take some time for introspection and confession. And I'm going to invite you to come together in unity, selflessness, humility, to remember and to proclaim. I'm going to pray in just a minute, but I just want to invite you, as we take communion, we're going to invite you to, to stand up. Come by rows, come up, and here there's a, a one with gluten-free in the back. And come up and take the elements, and then go on back to your... Uh, to your place and be seated and I just want to invite you we're going to be doing some worship as we do that and just be seated and take the time for introspection examination and and prayer before you take the elements Um, but and just think about that you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion if you know Jesus as your savior you're you're welcome to come and and partake Uh, but just stop and think and and, uh, and pray about that as we go let's pray father We thank you that you are a God who loves us incredibly. And I just pray, Lord, as we together, as we together celebrate this communion, that you would be honored and glorified. This is an expression of unity, an expression of the body. And I pray that you'll continue to draw us together in that way. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, You for that amazing grace that we are recipients of and I pray that we will always remember and proclaim until you come back in Jesus name very quickly just If you are a first-time guest, there's a Connect card in your program. If you would be so kind as to fill that out, you can fill as much information as comfortable. If you do that, we will send you a Caribou coffee card, and you can put that in the offering box on your way out. Also, prayer requests there as well. Connect groups begin tomorrow. Exciting we had an overwhelming response, and it's exciting to see if you still want to get in a connect group I think there's still time you can see pastor Damien after the service. They are really full But uh, we'll see if we can squeeze you in you may have to pay some. No, I'm just kidding We have to bribe Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yes, yes um, So anyway, that's it if you have a prayer request something you want to pray for uh, on your way out. We will have a um, prayer team up here as well, so